you have a Bible, if I could encourage you to turn in it or to turn it on to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 7 down to verse 21. If you're using one of the Bibles on the seat underneath you or in the pew rack, if you want to turn to page 1023, uh, you'll be in the right spot. Uh, this past week, I, I read part of a book, uh, or re- I read part of a book, and one of the chapters that I, I looked at was talking about how our brains function. And I certainly know very little about neuroscience, but one of the things that amazes me when I read stuff about how our brains work is I usually two things happen. One is I come amazed with, wow, that's amazing, they figured that out, and that's how our brain works. But at the same time, I often come away going, well, how does my brain work in this way? Because maybe you've heard me preach enough times to wonder, how does his brain get from point A to point B? And I'll be honest, there's a lot of times I wonder how my brain gets from point A to point B. And I had one of those moments this week, um, working on the verses that we're going to look at today, kind of going through them. And when I got working on them, I read a quote by a guy named William Tyndale. Now, William Tyndale was one of the first martyrs of the Reformation. The reason he was martyred is because he was the first person to ever take the the New Testament and put it in the English language and have it published. And because of doing that, literally there were people, there was a conspiracy against him and his life was taken. Now, he wrote a lot of things. Not He didn't write the Bible, but he translated the Bible. And when he was writing a commentary on the verses we're going to look at today, he said these words. He described them this way. He said, John singeth his old song again. And as I'm thinking about that quote, I'm thinking, John singeth his old song again. Almost at the same time in my head pops in a song that is known, the title of the song is, The Song That Doesn't End. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, where is this song coming from? Why is the song that never ends all of a sudden playing in my head because of a a William Tyndale quote? How does that work? And I'm pretty sure, and I'm thinking, well, maybe it was from a Muppet episode I saw one time. That must be where it's coming from. And I happened to go out of my office, and, and we do these sort of interesting staff meetings. I stand in the hallway between Brad and, or Brad and Mike's doors, and I ask them questions. And they verified, no, it's not a Muppets show, Lloyd. It's from Sherry Lewis and her puppet friend, Lamb Chop. And I'm standing there in the hall going, how does my head go from William Tyndale, an early martyr of the Protestant Reformation, to a sock puppet? How does that work? And as I'm wondering in my own head, how does this work? How did I get those connections? Almost simultaneously, Brad and Mike say, hey, Lloyd, you should use Bill Murray's Groundhog Day as your introduction on Sunday. And all of a sudden, I'm standing there in the hallway again going, William Tyndale... Lamb Chop, Bill Murray. How did we get there? Well, we got there because I read the first words of 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, which read, Beloved, let us love one another. For the third time in 1 John, John is calling us to, to love one another. Like Bill Murray's weatherman character reliving February 2nd over and over again, or Lamb Chop continually singing the one-verse song that doesn't end, John is singing his old song again, Love One Another. 
It's kind of like, John, why do you keep bringing this up again? Why do you keep us going back there and reliving it? Why do you do this? Why do you want us to sing the same song again and again? Well, as we go through, through these verses this morning, I think he's going to actually answer that question, why does he repeat himself? He's going to get us there. But before he gets us there, he does want to tell us a, a couple of pretty big things about love. In some ways, he wants to tell us why he keeps telling, why we need to love one another and how we do it before he ever gets to why does he repeat himself. So we kind of want to jump in this morning, kind of follow John's kind of path, kind of take the journey he takes, and really by start by asking why is it that we do need to love one another? Why is that? What would motivate us to do that? Why should we do that? Well, John gives three reasons. Reason number one, why should we love one another? I think John would say because love is a family expression. He's kind of touched on this before, but he, he comes back to it. Verses 4 to 7, all the verses. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. John says, hey, I want you to understand some things about love. I'm going to call you to love other people. I'm going to call us to love one another. But I want to make it clear there's some things about love you need to understand. To kind of zoom in, in some ways, what is he saying? Is when we talk about love, and we defined it a couple weeks ago when we talked about it, because John talked about it, that love is really giving of myself. Love is giving of myself. I'm sacrificing in some way for the benefit of another. And he says, you know where that really comes from? I want you to understand this. When I call you to do that, this thing you're supposed to do comes from God. You and I loving, our ability to love isn't something we develop in ourselves. It really is something that comes from God. Specifically, the end of verse 7 says that love comes into our lives because we're born of God. Now, to be born of God means, what John means to be born of God is that you or I hear the story of Jesus. And when we hear the story of Jesus, we realize, you know what, we're separated from God. And not only are we separated from God, but that's a desperate place to be. Being separated from God is not where you want to be. You want to be reconciled, reconnected to God. As we hear the story of Jesus, we begin to understand that Jesus came to deal with that separation for us. And Jesus came to make it possible so you and I could be reconciled to God. The Bible would say very clearly the way we're reconciled to God is when we repent of our sin, when we turn from sin to God and trust the Lord Jesus. And now, all of a sudden, we're connected to God. We're reconciled. The Bible, one place here in 1 John says, that means we're born of God. Now, that has significant impact when you start talking about the issue of love. See, it really matters whether or not you're connected to God when it comes to love. Because if you look at the end of verse 8, the end of verse 8 says what? God is love. That means, what John means by that is by nature, by character, God, everything God does, every action of God, every attitude of God, every disposition of God has love connected to it. Now, if you and I are born of God, we're connected to Him, we're tied to Him, then that really implies that the traits of God are to rub off on us. We are to become like God in our lives. God's love 
who God is, is meant to shape us. It's meant to mark our lives. Because God is love, love should become more and more a part of our lives. If we're members of His family, it should be marking us, it should be shaping us. And as God's love and who God is is rubbing off on us and impacting us, then all of a sudden we should be people who express love. John's saying, why love one another? Because love is a family trait. You're tied to God. If you're connected to God, it's kind of like it's got to ooze out of you. It's got to come forth. To me, if there's an implication of this, there's a challenge for this in us, let me ask you this question. Question not necessarily to be answered just in the moment, but for you and I to wrestle with, is are you and I, are you seeking God's traits to rub off on you? If God is saying, hey, you're part of my family, do you want to look like you belong to God's family? Do you want His traits rubbing off on you? Second reason to love, not only is it a family trait, but John says there's another reason to love, and that reason is is because of the impact of God's love in Jesus. God's love is to impact us. Look at verses 9 and 10. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, Building off of the idea in verse 8 that God is love, John says, hey, let me tell you more about God's love. God is love and God expressed His love in, and I want you to see more about it, John says. Now, part of the way John wants us to see more about God's love is to tell us about God's love connected to a couple of things about us sort of two things about us that kind of make God's love look a little more impressive, kind of make it stand out and see it. Look at the end of verse 9, okay? The end of verse 9 says that we might live through Him. Those words are in part a reminder to us that for us to really live, for us to really engage in life totality, to be able to do life, we don't have it in ourselves, It had to come from somewhere else. We live in a culture that often operates that you'll be loved if you're impressive. And if you do something impressive, people will love you. But John is telling us here, you know what? We're not that impressive. One of the great truths of life is we're not everything we should be. And as much as we try to sometimes cover that up and hide that, God says, you don't need to. I love you right there. I love you in that juncture, in that moment, in that place. Verse 10 tells us a little bit more about God's love too. At the end of verse 10, it says that Jesus came as a propitiation of our sins. He was the propitiation of our sins. I'm going to guess that the word propitiation is not a word that you use like 300 times a day. It's sort of a fancy theological word. It's a word that by meaning tells us that you and I owe God an enormous debt. That because of the fact that you and I fall short, which is sort of a soft way of saying you and I are sinners, we literally deserve, as we sang today, we literally deserve the wrath of God on our lives. And yet because of God's kindness and because of God's love, 
Jesus took that punishment that should have been on us, and He took it. And I've put this into a context of love. John is saying, hey, let me tell you some things about yourselves. You're needy. You're in a bad situation. And you really have a huge debt you can't pay. But into that construct of who we are, John is saying, God loves you. Right there, right where you are, right who you are, God loves you. And based on what John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, John thinks if you and I would just stop and think about that amazing love, that I'm not what I should be, and yet God still loves me. I owe God this huge debt. I should be punished by God, and yet God loves me. God redeems me. John thinks from John chapter, or 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, we should be blown away by it. That as we think about God's love, there should be this sense of wonder, this sense of delight, this sense of awe. And where John's going to go in verse 9, 10, and really where he's pointing to in verse 11, is if we simply think about and consider, kind of let this wonder of this amazing love of God, I don't deserve, and yet God brings it into my life. As that pulsates through me, that's going to move me to action. That's going to do something to me. So you look at verse 11. Beloved, again, beloved, if God so loved us, if We don't deserve God's love, and yet God loves us in an amazing way of sending His Son for us. If that's true, then what? We ought to love one another. When we simply consider, why would I love other people? Because if God loves me the way He has, and He's given me that love, how can I help it not to ooze out? How can I help it not be there? He said, we must love one another. Why? Because of God's love for us in Jesus. Why does John say we've got to love? Well, partly it's a family trait. Second, because if we just consider the impact of God's love, it's got to come out. And then the third reason is to be transformed by God's love. Why else would I love? Because I can be transformed by God's love. Look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Now, John wants us to know God as much about God as we possibly can. So he begins verse 12 by really telling us a fairly significant theological truth. Okay? We can't see God. Right now, we don't see God with our physical eyes. We don't see God. God the way we ultimately will and as Revelation 22 depicts. We don't see Him. Now, to some measure, that can be a little uncomfortable because if love's a family trait and we can't see the Father we're supposed to become like, how do we become like Him? That could be a little tricky. I'm like my dad because for the first 23 and almost half years of my life, I lived in the same house under a roof with Him. And there are things that my dad did, I do. There's hand motions, there's facial gestures, there's all kinds of things. There's goofy statements that drive my family nuts. But I saw my dad. How do we get past the seeing God? Well, John says, hey, don't freak out that you can't physically see God because 
There's something going on. Now, in the background, he's reminding us, he wants us to understand, hey, we don't see God, but we're able to love because God loves us, okay? He, that's really, he's already covered that. You, you can love. And I jump into verse 12 more directly. If we then, God's made it possible for me to love. If I am loving, then the verse says I'm abiding with God. God abides in me. When I'm loving, so all of a sudden, even though I don't physically see God, when I'm loving other people, now I'm in the context of I'm with God, I'm connected to God. I maybe don't see Him with my physical eyes, but I experience God relationally. We're tied, we're connected. And if I'm doing that, if that's happening, if I'm loving God, and that's a reminder I'm in a relationship with God, what does the verse go on to say? The verse goes on to say His love is perfected in us. Somehow, when I'm trying to love other people from the love God's given me and I'm trying to love other people, that love does a work in my life. That love is perfecting, it's changing and shaping, it's transforming me. Carrie and I, two weeks ago and one day, had our 28th anniversary. And what I hope is true is that I am a better, in that sense, lover today than I was then. Carrie's prayer is that in the next 28 years, when we get to our 56th anniversary, I'll finally get this figured out. But you know what? She can pray that with some measure of confidence. Why? Because if I'm seeking to love, if you're seeking to love, as a follower of Christ, I'm taking the love God's given me and I'm trying to share it. That love can do a work in me. It transforms me. Why would I love? Because I get changed. Why love? John says really quick, why love? It's a family trait. Why love? Because of the impact of God's love in Jesus when I consider it. Why love? Because God's love transforms me. That's why. But how? How do you do it? How do you do it? A couple weeks ago, literally two weeks ago, we looked at 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. And it said there that love demands sacrifice. It means you taking things you've been given and sharing them. And that's not always easy for us. I mean, is it always easy to love other people? I don't think it is. I don't always find it easy to love other people. And so how do I do this? And I look at the verses we've already looked at today. I mean, verse 7 says that love comes from God. Verse 8 says that God is love. And verse 10 says that it's not that we love, but that God loved us. And I'm looking at, I know it's not easy to love. That means me giving and sacrificing and doing things. That's not easy. And the truth is, if all of this love stuff is from God, that means on my own, it's not like I have this big reservoir of love to already draw from. I've got to get it. So how do I do it? John says, hey, let me tell you two key things that if you would embrace, it'll let you love. It'll help you love. It'll empower you to love. It'll move you to love. Okay, key number one, how can you and I love? Key number one, we love when we realize there's a relational connection with the Holy Spirit. 
when we realize we're connected to the Holy Spirit, if you're a father of Christ, you're connected, you all of a sudden are in a place to love. Read with me the next chunk, verses 13 down to verse 15. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. Now, similar to singing the same old song about love, John seems to want to add a second verse. Let's sing the song about abiding again. Okay, three weeks ago, he talked about, we looked at it, he's bringing it up again. John wants us to be connected to God. He's making a huge point. We need to be connected to God. And say, so, well, why? Why does John keep bringing this up? Why is it so important for us to be connected to God? Well, look at verse 14 with me for a minute. It's kind of zoom in on there. Part of the reason why I think John wants us to be connected to God is that without Jesus, we're not connected. Without Jesus, we're not connected to God. Part of you say, where are you getting that from? Well, look at the words. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior. When the word Savior is used, that suggests that someone needs to be saved. Someone needs to be rescued. They should be with God, but all of a sudden they're not. They're separated. There's this gap. There's this disconnection. But the Lord Jesus came to rescue us. He came to redeem us. He came to save us. We're not connected, but God made it possible we could be. Verse 15 kind of unpacks how the rescue happens, how we get in in that sense on the benefits of the rescue. When we confess who Jesus is, and by confess here, I think John is saying, when we entrust ourselves to who Jesus is, we say, here's my life. I'm giving it to you, Lord. I'm entrusting it to you. When we recognize and accept Jesus as our Savior, it's telling us, hey, we are connected to Him. He abides in us. We abide in Him. We're connected to Him. Now, that's a huge gift. It's a huge gift to be connected to God, and God wants us to know we're connected, which really then takes us back to verse 13. God so much wants us to be connected to Him wants us to abide in Him, that He doesn't just say, hey, you're abiding in me. He says, I want you to have the gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to take my Spirit and I'm going to put Him in your life. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the Bible will tell us that the Holy Spirit is, in essence, the down payment, the relational connection we receive as a follower of Christ with the Father. When I trust the Lord Jesus as my Savior, the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit to become a part of my life. I'm relationally connected to the Holy Spirit. Why is that significant? How is that going to help me love? The Holy Spirit is going to help me love because all of a sudden the power to love is in the Spirit of God. And if you are familiar at all with Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, and it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the first fruit, first part of the fruit to be technical, is love. Which all of a sudden means in a relational connection with the Holy Spirit, I now have power and a reservoir of love to draw from. I can take the resources of God and all of a sudden the power of God and all of a sudden I can share it. 
something that's hard for me to do, as I live in that relational connection, I can now begin to do. Second key thing, which really the, the two keys are really tied together very closely, is also this idea of abiding in God. My relational connection, yes, to the Holy Spirit, but also abiding in God. John wants to draw it out a little bit more. Verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Okay, when I trust the Lord Jesus, and I'm then connected to the Holy Spirit, John says when that's true about us, we can know and experience God's love. That becomes how it becomes a part of my life, not just a thought or an intellectual idea, but I begin to experience that. That means I'm abiding, I'm connected. And if I'm abiding in that love, I'm trying to live my life in that love, then all of a sudden things are a little different in my life. All of a sudden, the God I love, the God who loves me, who we're abiding together, to go back to that family trait thing, He can be shaping me. He can be influencing me. He can be making a huge mark in my life. And folks, the one being in all of the universe, in all of creation, in everything, who is love is who? God. And as I abide in Him, as I'm connected to Him, His love shaping and filling in my life, as I abide with Him, now it can ooze out. The infinite resources and ability of God to love can have a bearing in my life and can be expressed through me. Let me ask you what I think is another important question. Again, something to ponder, something to go, how does this connect to my life? Are you actively striving to abide in God? Are you saying, and are you saying, God, I want to know you, I want to be drawn to you, I want to know that connection. This isn't just about, well, I'll go to church every once in a while. That's not bad. But this is about, is my life, am I striving to abide in God? Do I truly want to know Him? Because, folks, if you and I are going to be able to love one another, it's going to require us to have Him in our lives us abiding in Him. John said, here's why to love. He said, here's how to love. Now he's finally going to get to the place of, why are you repeating this? In essence, John wants to answer the question, why do you keep asking us to sing the same song again and again and again? Why do you keep saying, love one another? John, this sermon series could have been shorter if you had just said it once. Why do you keep repeating it? Why is it so important? Well, here's the short answer. John wants us to love one another so we can be confident. He says, I want you to be confident. Look at verses 17 and 18. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in this world. 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Okay, focus in with me on verse 17 for a minute. Okay, when it starts with the by this, okay, by this, it's kind of taking us back for a second. So John's saying, hey, through this relational connection you have with the Holy Spirit and through abiding in God, okay, through that, through those two things, God's love is perfected in us. Okay, he's going back saying this perfects us, this does a work in us. In essence, John is saying, guess what? This love that we receive from God can get richer and deeper and truer in our lives. That's what he wants to do is we're relationally connected and we're abiding as that's true. This love's going to do a work in our lives. You say, why do I need that love to do a work in my lives? Well, very simply, look at the grammar. What follows it? So that, why? So that we may be confident. And it's not a confidence of, hey, I'm confident today. No, it's saying, can we be confident from today until the day of judgment? That may not be a term, the day of judgment. You and I think about that often. We probably should live more in light of it because the Bible does tell us, it makes it kind of clear that there is going to be a day when every one of us is going to stand before God and have to give an account for our lives. And John is saying, I want you, when you get ready for literally the final, final exam, to be confident. How many of us have taken different tests at different times and you walk into that exam room and you are scared, you're terrified? How different would it be to walk in and say, I've got this. This is no big deal. This is a piece of cake. John's saying, I want you to be able to walk into that exam room without any fear, without any trepidation, without any, oh no, this is hanging in the balance. The final exam I ever took was my defending my doctoral dissertation. And I am convinced they try to scare the bejeebers out of you when you do it. Because they have you walk in the room and then they say, you need to leave for a while. I haven't even said anything yet and I've already failed. And then you do your exam and then they say, you need to leave. And every person I've ever met that has gone through that process says the exact same thing. You stand in the hallway and your entire life flashes before your eyes. And you're thinking, how do I tell my wife I failed? You know, that's what can happen. And John said, I don't want that for you. I want you to have confidence. I want you to know you can do this. And he says, it's not because of us. See, the reason we can be confident isn't because of us, but look at how verse 17 ends. Now, to be very clear, the ending of verse 17 is not the simplest words in all of Scripture. But I think what John is saying is this, to kind of back up and flow through the verses. If I'm abiding in God, I can be confident. If I'm abiding in God and His love is moving in my life to transform me, if His love is being expressed in my life, then what I think John is saying here is I'm going to be living the same way the Lord Jesus did. As Jesus lived. How did Jesus live? Jesus lived on earth how? Abiding with His Father. He lived 
and he expressed the love of God. Who is the most confident person ever to live? I honestly believe it was Jesus. If you read the gospel accounts of Jesus from the garden forward, from when he prays in the garden of Gethsemane and goes forward, he's the one who's going to die. He's the one that's going to be crucified. He's the one that's abused and beaten on. And yet he's the one in control. He goes confidently to the cross. He goes confidently through the hardest thing in life. And I think John is saying because he's abiding in the Father, because he had the Father's love. And I think John is saying we can get that too. We're not going to do it perfectly. But we can live with confidence from now to the day of judgment. That's a huge gift. That's why he's repeating it. Love one another. Love it. Keep going there. Keep abiding there. Keep trying to figure this out. Let his love shape you. What's the impact of that? Well, look at verse 18, going back to the idea of fear. Jesus lived with confidence. He had the Father's love. If that's true about us, if we have the Father's love, we don't have fear. Perfect love casts out fear. If you have trusted the Lord Jesus, you don't have to worry about punishment. That doesn't mean God isn't going to discipline us. But Hebrews 11 makes it clear. Hebrews 12, God disciplines us. It's still got His love. God's discipline is always marked by His love. We can be disciplined, but it's always marked by His love. We don't have to worry about, is God going to zap me? I've met so many people who are like, you know, God's going to zap me if I did that, or God's going to zap me because I did that. Where do you get that from in these verses? He loves you. And His love casts out the fear. John says, I don't want you living in fear. I want you living in confidence. That's what God desires for us. That's what God brings in our lives. If you are abiding in God, His love is there to erase the fear out of your life. Which to me brings another important question. Is fear a big factor in your life? I don't know what the percentage would be. My guess is there's a lot of us that fear has a huge role in our lives. I think John is saying, don't go there. If that is an issue for you, if that is a struggle for you, I think the counsel, the advice, the direction that John would give this morning would be go back to verse 9, go back to verse 10. In essence, ponder the cross. Ponder what Jesus did for you. And let the wonder and amazement of that move that fear away. John said a whole lot about loving one another. And he kind of comes to the end of the chapter and there's a sense in which he just kind of wants to wrap it up. He wants us to be confident, but he wants to make it clear, kind of nutshellish. So look at verses 19 to 21 with me. He loved, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. But he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. 
In a nutshell, John, how can I be confident when it comes to love? How can I do this? John would say it's really fairly straightforward. God loves us. We're commanded to love other people. And he says you can kind of do a gut check and see how you're doing on that. If you're not loving other people, there is a major disconnect between you and God. See, a lot of times we think us loving other people is about the other people. That's not what John is saying. John is saying there is a disconnect. If I'm struggling, if I can't love other people, if I'm not loving other followers of Christ in my life, then there's a disconnect between me and God. And folks, if there is ever a disconnect between us and God, that is huge. That is one of those things we cannot ignore. It is something where I've got to say, God, help me here. God, help me look at my life. Help me see what's going on here. This might be one of those times where I've got to say, God, what do I need to repent of? What do I need to confess? What do I need to deal with? Because the command God gives is, hey, we're to love one another. Because He's loved us, we're to love. John says in simple, straightforward terms, if we take the love God's given us, we receive it from Him, now we love one another. When we do that, when we receive God's love, we can be confident. Not only can we be confident, but we can be about singing John's song again and again and again. And Jesus said, John 13, verse 34 and 35, part of how the world will know there's followers of Christ is because of our love. And that love isn't just an amazing gift we give to each other. It is a magnetic thing that people desperately need. Folks, John says, love one another. Let's repeat it, not just by saying it, but let's repeat it by the way we live every day. Let's pray. Father, you are love, which means everything you do, every action you take, every thought you have is all about love just like it's all about holiness, all about righteousness and truth. You're all those things. And you want that to rub off on us. And then you want us to share that. Father, we probably come to church expecting sometimes to hear, love one another. But Lord, this isn't just about hearing words we're supposed to hear. I thank you that you want to move in our lives through the Spirit of God, through us abiding in you to be able to live confidently. Lord, I pray, I'd ask, may we receive your love. May we strive to have your love rub off on us. May we desire to be with you so that instead of living a life of fear, your love can purge our fear. And your love instead leads us to live confidently. Father, I thank you that you want so much more for us. 
May we receive what you have for us today. And may we go from here living confidently because we're loving one another. And Lord, you're going to use that love to ooze out. And I pray, Lord, draw others to you. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray.